you will please turn your Bibles to Psalm 14. Psalm 14, I believe it can be found in the chairs in, in front of you by looking at page 453. Uh, it's been our tradition for the last several summers to study the Psalms. And so this summer we are looking at that treasured volume, Psalms 13 through 24. And this Sunday brings us to Psalm 14. This is God's holy word to us this morning. To the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You who would shame the plans of the poor, the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the first fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Father, as we read and as we study your holy word, would you lay its truth upon our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nearing his death, the once slave trader turned preacher, John Newton, famously said, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. He said, I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. In a single sentence, John Newton very perfectly summarized the story of God's amazing grace. He did so by revealing the fact, by reveling in the fact that Christ is a wonderful, merciful Savior because Newton remembered what Christ had saved him from captain aboard a slave trading ship. And that is why Newton famously penned that hymn, Amazing Grace. You may remember that line, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a a wretch like me. Again, Newton was reminded of God's amazing grace because of his mercy to save a wretch. We don't use that word very much these days, but That means a scoundrel. That means a good-for-nothing sinner. That is how Newton saw himself apart from the grace of God. And that is what Psalm 14 does for us this morning. It reminds us all who we are apart from Christ. We are wretches. We are scoundrels. We are good-for-nothing sinners apart from God's amazing grace to save us, to rescue us. That is what this psalm is teaching us this morning. It 
does not make its way to uh, the top of the list of favorite psalms because of what it teaches, what it says. But it's important for us to study and for understand these very foundational biblical truths that in some ways in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ have been forgotten. So let's explore the truths from this psalm this morning by looking at the bad news, and then the good news, and then some great news. So let's go with the bad news first. The bad news is, the psalm says, no one is good, not even one. Not even one. No one is good. Pastor Randy Pope frames what most people believe about the human condition in a very helpful way. He has a diagnostic question that he asks when he's doing personal evangelism. And the question goes like this. Ask someone, do you believe that people are basically good or basically bad? What this question is getting at is, what do you believe to be the, the moral condition of mankind? And then he goes on in his evangelism technique here to ask uh, someone this question by giving them four options. Do you believe that man is good? Or do you believe that man is good with a little bad? Or do you believe man is bad? Or do you believe that man is bad with a little good? So there's your four options. Man is good. Man is good with a little bad. Man is bad. Or man is bad with a little good. So let me ask you, what do you think that 99.9% of people in this world give as that answer, the answer? I think most people would say man's good a little bad. Man's basically good, do a little bad sometimes. That's, that's basically what most people believe, right? Now let me ask you that question again. And the answer key for you is Psalm 14. What is the answer? <laughs> Man is bad. Let's close in prayer. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> we laugh at that. But most people don't believe that, do they? Even many people in the church don't believe that. Even us, maybe you've lived a pretty good moral life and you're you're suspicious. You're like, you know, I really haven't killed anybody. I drove the speed limit on the way to church. The cops are usually at the bottom of Montesano here to help you with that. Uh, Old Sunday morning. So just, you know, public service announcement. Um, Not sure what that's about. to help remind us of our theology. We're all bad. (laughs) We sin by speeding. That's what Psalm 14 is teaching us. And this is actually the starting point for the gospel. We need to know the bad news this morning. We must start with this important doctrine that mankind is sinful. And apart from the saving mercy of Our God, we are unable to do good. We are unable to save ourselves. Pastor Russ announced a new members class we'll have coming up in August. And if you want to join this church, if you want to join a a Presbyterian church in America, you have to actually, we're not going to get you to stand up here and tell a story. We're going to ask you to make vows. And we're going to ask you these vows in the form of questions. And the first question we're going to ask you is this. Not a very fun question. (laughs) Do you acknowledge yourselves to be a sinner in the sight of God and 
justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. You realize what you're ascending to there, right? You are a scoundrel. You are a sinner. You have no hope. That is what we're going to ask you. If Psalm 14 is not enough to convince you of this important doctrine of the sinfulness of man, we've already read in Romans 3 where Paul quotes here from Psalm 14 and other places in the Scripture that teach this doctrine of depravity. You may recall Ephesians 2 where Paul reminds the believers in the church in Ephesus. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit was now at work in the sons of disobedience, among them whom we also walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then once more from the Old Testament in Jeremiah 17, 9, here is how Jeremiah contradicts the Disney theology to follow your own heart. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And here, as we've already read in Psalm 14, it unequivocally illustrates this truth. It teaches very plainly that all mankind is morally depraved without hope, except for the sovereign mercy of God. The name of this doctrine used commonly by the scholars and coined by St. John Calvin is called total depravity. Total depravity. This doctrine teaches that the world that we live in is fallen and sinful, and after Adam's Sin in the garden, the world has been corrupted, and so has everyone who's lived in it, whoever lived, whoever will live. We are all sinful. And this psalm is delineating what that looks like, how it plays out. There's a threefold progression of this universal moral depravity taught in these first three verses. In the first place, there is the fool. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Those who say in their hearts, there is no God. These are the practical atheists that David is describing here. Think about it. These are not the ones out in the street yelling, there is no God. These are the ones saying privately in their heart. Those who act this way and believe this way, the Bible calls them fools. The Hebrew word is Nabal. A Nabal is a wicked, morally wicked person. And they are morally wicked because they are godless. They do not believe God. So let's be clear about what the Bible teaches about who a fool is. A fool is someone who does not believe in God. God does not matter in their lives. God has no practical influence in the way they live their day-to-day lives. A fool is someone who follows the fool's creed. The fool's creed. There is no God. 
We all know that what we believe, what we think, it affects the way we live, right? And if you live your life with the belief that there is no God, then it will affect the way you live. And then here in Psalm 14, someone who lives their life according to the fool's creed, no belief, no thought of God, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. That is, they do wretched, horrible, awful deeds. That is the way their life plays out because they are godless. I once heard John Piper preach that the worst thing he could ever think of God saying to him on that final judgment day is, you fool. You fool. I agree. I don't want to be a fool. I don't think I've ever said in my heart that there is no God, but I wonder, and I'm afraid, there are moments in my day when I say things and do things that certainly express a disbelief in God according to my deeds. What about you? Are you afraid of being called a fool? At least a fool in the way that the Bible describes, a morally wicked and depraved, godless person. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you need to ask yourself that question. Am I a fool? Am I living as a fool? It's easy for us to read this psalm and others like it. There's Psalm 12 and then Psalm 53 that is basically identicals, and we can shake our head and say things like, yep, that's the world for you. It's full of fools. It's full of really messed up, godless sinners. But as we look at the progression of this psalm, and if you look a little closer, we'll discover the context of this psalm is not to the people out there. It's to us. Specifically, here, David is speaking of the people of Israel, the people of God. In other words, this is a a message to the Old Testament church. This psalm is a judgment upon people who know the Lord and they have turned aside. Verse 1, we have the fool who simply rejects God, who just says there is no God. But in verse 2, you seem to have those who are apathetic. They reject God because they do not seek after God. They simply have no desire to know God or no desire to enjoy God. And again, it'd be easy for us to think that we are the exception to this statement, right? I mean, we are good Presbyterians. We have it all together. We're the good guys. Maybe you're sitting here this morning. Maybe you're a child or a teenager, and you feel absolutely safe this morning because you're here with your parents. You got out of bed this morning, you put on your Sunday best, you loaded up in the van like a happy camper, and you made it to church, and you're you're trying your best right now to listen to the sermon. But maybe you find yourself most of the time just not interested in hearing or listening to what God has to say or reading his word or worshiping him. Maybe you're saying right now with your actions, there is no God because you simply are not interested. 
If being a fool is the worst thing that God can say about us, then being apathetic toward God has to be a close second. If being a a fool is the worst thing that can come from God calling us, then us sitting here being apathetic, not caring one bit in the world, has to be a close second to the worst thing. I mean, think about it. Think about everything that we have this morning right in front of us expressed in the means of grace. Think about all that God is giving to us today. He has his best for us. We have the the preaching and teaching of his word. We have the Holy Supper in front of us. We have the fellowship and the communion of the saints. Everything is right here before us to enjoy and devour, and yet somehow, sometimes, we show up on Sunday morning as if it's court-ordered punishment. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. For this morning, we've been invited to a banquet. We've been invited to a celebration. We've been invited to rejoice and enjoy all the best that God has to offer us. And so let us pray this morning that God would wake us from our apathy, that he would wake us from our stupor, our indifference. And then the progression gets a little worse. It it gets fully summarized. The verdict in verse 3, look there. There is none who does good. Not even one. Not even one. Everyone is turned aside. This is a blanket condemnation on everyone. No one can escape this. The fool, the casual church attender, no one is good or does good apart from God. And so the takeaway from these three verses here in Psalm 14 is that total depravity is the natural state of mankind. It is the condition of the whole human race. It is bad news. And it should leave us crying out as the psalm ends, Save us, O Yahweh. Save us. And that leads to the good news. The good news is that God has a people. God has preserved for himself a people. The universal and moral depravity of mankind is because we are in absolute bondage to sin. Everything about us is sinful. Nothing has been left untouched. We are unable to save ourselves. And yet, if we look closely at this psalm, we find echoes of God referring to my people. He says, the generation of the righteous. Who is God talking about here? Verses 5 and 7. Who deserves the favor of God after the testimony of verses 1 through 3? I mean, let's just be honest. That bad news is bad. It's depressing. Who who could be my people? Who belongs to the Lord after that? This is the almost silent assumption that we find here in this psalm. God has a people. He always has a people. God's grace can be found in the fact that he always has these people that he calls the elect, the chosen ones, those who belong to him. 
Other places in Scripture we read about the depravity of mankind as those who are dead to their sin. They are enslaved to the sinful ways of the world and the devil. They are called children of wrath. But in these places, the bad news is followed by good news. And that good news goes something like this. But God, who is rich in mercy, by His grace in Christ alone, He makes us alive. He redeems those who are His. He has His people. This is the good news of the gospel, isn't it? He takes foolish, apathetic, godless sinners and he moves in their hearts and he saves them by his grace. And so no matter what your story is this morning, maybe your story is that you grew up in a Christian home. You've always known the Lord. You've always experienced his grace and love and his mercy because of the environment God has you in. Or maybe you grew up in really one of those tough situations. One of the worst of our society. No matter how your story ends or goes, we must never forget God's saving grace in our lives to claim us as His people. Or even better, His children. That's the good news. Though we are great sinners, Christ is a great Savior. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on these psalms, he tells a story I'd never heard of before. It's a Bear Bryant story, so revered here in Alabama. After Alabama defeated Penn State in the 1979 Sugar Bowl, Coach Bryant and other Alabama fans were celebrating in a nearby hotel. Coach Bryant was wearing a brand new t-shirt, probably one that was celebrating their victory, and had a hole in it. One of the fans came up to Coach Bryant and said, Coach, your t-shirt has a hole in it. Coach Bryant responded, yeah, I know. I always tear a small hole in my t-shirt, so I'll never forget where I came from. Despite all of his success, it was important for him to remember that he grew up on a poor, on a farm in Arkansas in the middle of nowhere. So he tore that hole in his t-shirt to remind himself of where he came from. It should be the same with us as Christians. We should never forget where we came from. Though we too at one time may have been fools, apathetic to a life of following God, though we too were once without hope and without God, may we never forget the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our depravity. The truth is this, is that salvation, God's amazing grace at work in our lives, is dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit to give us new life before We can believe in Christ. And so our sinful, depraved condition should not be viewed as something that's kind of out there in the world. It should be first and foremost viewed as something that is in our hearts apart from God. We are fallen, sinful creatures. You and I are unable to save ourselves. We need rescue from our lying and deceit 
we need a Savior. And that leads us to the even greater news. The even greater news is found in verse 7. Salvation has come from Zion. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. This psalm was written by King David, so we might imagine that he would ascend up to Mount Zion, the location of the temple. Zion was the temple mount. And on the temple mount, that's where the sacrifices for sin were made. That's where the blood flowed. Zion, the temple, the sacrifices, the smells, the blood flowing, it was all a reminder of how salvation to God's people comes through a sacrifice, a sacrifice of atonement. And so how could, God say, how could God's people be saved from their sins? How could we be rescued from our morally depraved hearts? It can only come through an atoning sacrifice. And of course, we know this morning that salvation has come once and for all out of Zion from a Savior who ascended the hill called Calvary, and he was a once and for all sacrifice for sin. At the cross did e'er such love and sorrow meet. This is the best news of all. It's the greatest news there ever was. God has done what we could not do for ourselves. It is by grace you have been saved. Christ, our forever sacrifice. So the table before us this morning, the means of grace, is a visible, tangible reminder that yes, there is bad news. We are sinners, and a sacrifice must be made for our sin. But that bad news leads us to the good news, which leads us to the greatest news that there ever was. That though we are dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive in Christ Jesus. It is by grace you have been saved. This table is a table of God's grace. It's a reminder of what God has done. That those who discover their great depravity can find amazing grace in a holy God. So maybe the word that we need to think about this morning as we approach the table, don't be a fool this morning. Don't be a fool. Do not reject God. Believe in him. Believe in what he has done through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And equally this morning, may we pray that God would awaken our apathetic hearts that he would wake us from our slumber to his amazing grace for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us where we have neglected the bad news, where we have Maybe forgotten, or ignored, or rejected the depravity of our hearts. 
that apart from your sovereign mercy, Lord, we are dead, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. But, oh, Lord, we don't stop there. We don't waller in that misery. We rejoice because you, O oh God, have shown love and grace and mercy far beyond our understanding by sending your one and only Son to awaken us, to make, an, make us alive, to rescue us by his sacrifice. We praise you, O oh Lord, that salvation has come out of Zion, that Christ has been sacrificed for us. Help us to keep and to celebrate this feast that is before us, who you are, because of who you are and what you have done. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.